And I do feel there is a sort of change in energy and that people are starting to think more. There does seem to be some sort of evolution going on here where people are becoming more aware and more conscious and, and starting to challenge those big businesses. And I think we have to cultivate and grow that as much as we can. And I think that there is some sort of light at the end of the tunnel, basically. I can tell you a million things wrong at the moment and stuff that I want to tackle and things that aren't being done as they should be done. But I do think there there is a change and I think people are awakening. Welcome back to another episode of the Plant-Based News Podcast. With me today is a very exciting guest, Marissa Heath, the CEO of the Plant-Based Food Alliance. Marissa's career's trajectory has seen her leading projects with environmental policy at their heart. She has been a long-time policy advisor on sustainable land use, biodiversity, wildlife and animal welfare. For over a decade, Marissa has also served as a cabinet member for the environment, where she has used her expertise to develop government policy. She has been responsible for delivering plans and strategies to meet carbon targets in the county of Surrey, including countryside management, tree planting programs, new waste contracts and increasing biodiversity. In 2021, she founded the Plant-Based Food Alliance UK, a coalition of organisations in the UK's plant-based food and drink industry, united in their vision for a more sustainable, healthy and secure food system. With the aim of making the UK a global leader in plant-based food and drink, the Plant-Based Food Alliance provides a voice for the growing plant-based sector in the UK that helps to improve public health and to realise the government's environmental goals. I am very excited to be talking to her today about her personal mission as an environmental policymaker, her aims for the Plant-Based Food Alliance and all things plant-based. This is the Plant-Based News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. As always, if you like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast, Marissa. Great to sit down with you. Really excited to be here, Robbie. I'm, I'm really grateful to have the space to talk about the work I'm doing. Well, before we dive into all the amazing things you've been doing with your life recently, let's go back in time and tell us your plant-based or vegan story. How did you discover this lifestyle and where did it all begin for you? So I grew up in Indonesia and I was really connected with animals, like just with us all the time and things. So I was always really empathetic towards animals' plight. So I started working, I was actually working in defence and I saw an opportunity to work in animal welfare within parliament in this group called the all-party parliamentary group for animal welfare so i started my story on an animal welfare um, pathway i became vegan 12 years ago and it was all to do with animals but then i started learning about nutrition as well i did a diploma in nutrition and i got really into training and also did a personal trainer qualification and it all just connected and i just thought this is amazing it's exactly the right thing to do so 12 years ago it was quite early days i mean there's people who've been vegan a lot longer but it was those days where it was more difficult than it is now to find some of the great products we've got available. And then as I've gone along, I've just sort of seen how it connects into everything else, the environment, um, sustainability, all of those sort of things that matter to me so much and the reason why I work in public policy. What was the pivotal moment for you with, with regards making the switch? Because you know some people are born vegan, some people are born vegetarian, some people are born omnivorous into an omnivorous family and it's a sort of slow process. Was it an instant thing for you to make that switch no. when you found out enough or was it very slow? It wasn't. And it really shocks me looking back that I missed so many things. I was vegetarian for ages and feeling quite like I was doing the right thing. And then I, um, part of my work in animal welfare was that I needed to understand what was going on. So I was going to abattoirs on farms, all of this kind of stuff. I'm advising politicians, so I needed to know how it all worked. And I was on one abattoir and I was watching the animals come through. It was considered what is a good abattoir in that it was catering to sort of Waitrose and Marks and Spencers and those sort of companies. But then at the end, one cow came off and it didn't look the same as all the other cows and I said to the um, worker there what's what's happened to that cow and he said oh that's an old dairy cow she's sort of passed her use by date basically she's not producing milk anymore so um, this is where she comes and that cow just looked so depressed and dejected and it was just really heartbreaking seeing her and I went home that night and started the research and that that's what turned me literally that day I stopped doing taking any sort of dairy products and things and yeah it, it flicked the switch. It's amazing. I, I speak to so many people who have these kind of aha moments, these light bulb moments, and it usually often involves a single individual that was the catalyst, a single cat or a dog or a cow or a chicken or a pig. Um, and I find it so fascinating that, you know, we build this awareness within ourselves, this realization that something needs to change. And then we meet an individual or we we cross paths with an individual, an animal that is in some kind of situation. Myself, it was a cat you know they were killed in a in a in an accident on the road and i and it triggered that awareness but 
it was almost as if it was fated because I had experienced all this awareness building, as you said, you research and learning and reading and absorbing information, but then a sort of a pivotal moment appeared in your life and created that junction where you headed off in a specific direction. Do you ever, do you ever sort of feel, as you just said, like confused and frustrated why you didn't spot it earlier? I mean, do you ever sort of question why that is? Because I'm interested in that because I, I like my, my, like yourself, probably consider yourself a very compassionate person. You were vegetarian for a reason, but how is it that we just didn't connect the dots sooner? I'm very frustrated with myself over the years. And I know we can't go back in time, of course, but there's always that big question, you know, where, what did I miss? Do you think it's just a case of education? There's just not enough? I was working in animal welfare from 2006. So I'd, I'd been working in that environment thinking it was okay. And I think a lot of it comes down to the messaging because the kind of clear messaging is I'll be vegetarian because I don't want something to actually die. And with a cow or a chicken, you think, oh, but they're not dying, are they? Well, yes, they are because the calves and all of the sort of off, you know, of, of a dairy cow that goes to create that milk, you sort of miss that trick. And I think many people miss that. And also you, you miss the actual suffering because we don't get to see it. It's that whole, if slaughterhouses had glass walls and the same with farms and things, we don't get to see this. How many of us are going onto farms and into abattoirs and things and seeing what goes on? And I guess it's, I mean, it still interests me to this day how people can advocate so much for cats and dogs, for example, which I completely understand and I totally support, right. but then eat lamb or something. That all that's that puzzles me. I'm, you know, I've had conversations with people wearing fur and things, or some sort of lizard skin handbag and things, and they'd be sort of going, "I'm really into animal welfare too. Tell me about your job and things." And I kind of think, well, but you're wearing the skin of an animal. How can you be into animal welfare? And I think that speciesism is a real problem. We put animals in kind of levels. I've just created a kind of Twitter storm by talking about a fish, an exotic fish that I found in a pet shop near me. And it's been there for six months and it's sitting alone in its tank and it was taken from Brazil. And everyone's gone crazy about this thing. I didn't know that could happen, for example. Real animal welfare people, they just don't know some of the things that are happening. So yeah, your point is education. It is, it's awareness, it's information. It's so interesting. And you've given me a great idea, actually because uh, in a pet store here near where I live in South London there's this lovely little bird who's pecked off its feathers and apparently it's been living in they've been living in that cage for 15 years or something like that and the owner says you know this is normal this is the way the bird is but I personally don't believe that I believe that an individual like that just like a human being in the right conditions will blossom and flourish as an individual but in a cold and dark cage in the corner of a forgotten pet shop in the middle of nowhere that animal doesn't have an opportunity to be their best selves um how could they in such a depressing environment the cognitive dissonance that goes on with many human beings because they do not see animals as individuals with thoughts and feelings and emotions like us lock anyone in a a small container with no warmth they probably will lose their mind any human being would probably exhibit similar behaviors pulling out their hair and behaving erratically for me that's one of the most powerful things about this conversation is the realization that animals are just like us in all the ways that matter because we don't want to give animals the right to vote, but we want to give them the right to be free from confinement and torture, because that's what a lot of human beings do to animals without realizing it by the food choices and the fashion choices we make every day. So it is d- it is a deeply troubling world that we live in in many ways. But the fact that people like us can have these realizations and go on to do the work that we do obviously fills me with hope for the future. So thank you for, for making that realization and, and shifting your, your world and your career in that direction. Yeah. And, you know, people accuse me of being emotive when I said that the fish looked depressed. That was the industry's kind of attack on me. Don't put these emotive tweets out. It looked depressed and it probably was depressed. Why can an animal not be depressed or happy? Because they don't see the animal as an individual, do they? They see fish as a, an amorphous mass of commercial flesh that can be marketed. They don't see each individual. And that's the interesting thing. When you start to see animals as individuals, when you see them with their own unique inner worlds, you start to realize the importance of conscious and sentient beings. That sentience is a priceless gift that it's our world, our planet, and to get all philosophical, you know, it, it's potentially one of a kind. We have no idea whether Earth is unique or not out there in the cosmos. But can you imagine if Earth is unique and there's nothing else like it? What a horrible, depressing thought that we're causing so much suffering and destruction to all these beautiful beings that we share this incredible planet with, and that if we're not careful, we'll end up losing all of them and it'll just be humans and cows and chickens on planet Earth and nothing else, right? 
Yeah, I mean, did you see that statistic? It was something like 5% of animals are wild, free animals, and the rest are all captive, so pets or food, basically, pets or farm That's animals. That's right, yeah. For the biomass on Earth today, less it's actually less than 4% now yeah, is wow. uh, is wild animals and vertebrates. And, and if we continue along the path we are on, we will see you know a total annihilation of all vertebrates on the planet in the next 30 years or so, which is, which is deeply troubling. But that brings us to you know why we're sitting here today. One of the major reasons why uh, we are seeing huge amounts of habitat loss and species extinction and you know ocean dead zones and river acidification and deforestation is because of animal agriculture the way humans are living and eating is eviscerating our planet and we have to change and one of the ways we can do that is shift to a plant-based economy you've been involved in this space for a while but i'd love to learn a bit more about your career and what is the sort of what was the pivotal moment in your career for you what was sort of heading in this direction so as I said, so being plant-based for 12 years, I was still continuing to work in animal welfare. And over that time, we saw Brexit and things happening in regards to farming in this country. So the government changed the approach to farming and in some ways in a positive way, because they started to look at how they can get more biodiversity, um, look after the environment and things like that. But I was working very much on that side of the fence as to how do we get better farming? And I wasn't really speaking my true voice, which is how do we actually change the whole systems we live under in regards to food and environment. And we have all these conversations, we see them going on about air travel, about how we go about in our cars, how we heat our homes, all of this kind of thing. And there's just not enough conversations about the food we eat. Everyone's really scared to talk about it, and particularly in sort of parliament and government. Um, so the Plant-Based Alliance um, was formed last year, actually, Vegan Society, ProVeg, Upfield, who make those popular brands like BioLife and things, um, Outpro and Oatly had come together, looked at models in Europe and America that have been really successful and said, why doesn't the UK have one of these? And so they looked for someone who could lead them on that and I thought wow what an opportunity to finally step forward and start speaking my truth and be part of the huge change we need to do to, to do in order to save our planet quite frankly it's as broad as that and as mm, big as that absolutely uh, it's it's so important and I think that's the point we mentioned earlier about messaging this is the only way we're going to get through to the public is getting the messaging right because we have to drive awareness and you know the next question really is about how global issues such as the climate crisis divide opinion you know it, it, it's it feels like if we leave everything in the hands of government to, and to make changes nothing is going to get done but the, the problem seems so huge and so enormous that individuals individuals humans feel powerless to make any change they they we talk about the climate crisis and they look out there and they go climate weather this sort of um, existential kind of issue that's going out there in the environment but i spoke to an amazing young man called matthew schreibman of aim high earth and he talked about how we really need to be talking about the nature crisis rather than the climate crisis we need to help people understand that this is a crisis on earth yes of course the atmosphere and the way our local weather behaves like floods and forest fires and drought is going to affect us directly. But if we don't help people understand that our individual choices all add up to this big tidal wave or the tsunami, which is heading for us, it's now coming. Climate change, we all know about it. We all know it's worrying AF. Fusion is sort of like squeezing together two grapefruits in order to try to make a very hot melon. What is confidence? To which the highest scoring answer was, this is. Full stop, end of answer, walked out of the exam. Hi, I'm Matthew Shrivman. I studied sciences at the University of Oxford, and these are my missions. One, to make science as accessible as oxygen for the broadest possible audience. It normally goes legumes, and then root vegetables, and then fruit. The maximum horsepower of a horse is 15 horsepower. Two, to ignite curiosity and inspire courageous thinking. Combustible. Combustible, you burn yes. it. Cool. Should we light it up? Should get it lit. Yes. Logging an area, they're then converting it to eucalypt, which is a more faster growing. It's space. all eucalypt, what we walk through, isn't it? And three, to empower individuals to drive positive change and combat environmental destruction. In 2015, the UN announced the year, the International Year of Soils. Remember that? No. That's barely enough to absorb the last one hour of global emissions. We need a lot more trees. 
we have to get into a place of mitigation now. And if we don't get the public involved with the right messaging, then there really is no hope. But what can we as individuals do? Firstly, obviously, as advocates, what, we sh- what should we be doing more of? And what can individual people do who are not involved in like plant-based advocacy or, or veganism, but people who are individuals who care about the planet, who want to eat less meat maybe, but they don't really know whether what they're doing is having any effect? So the biggest way way to make change, we can all make our individual changes. And I think that's so important to say that everyone is empowered to make choices as a consumer and say you've got to do that. But the second way of making changes on the big scale, and that is through legislation, it's about legislation advocating for kind of funding to go in a certain area, for supporting through public procurement, for setting visions internationally, all of those sorts of things, which are down to the hands of our government. And what the individual person can do there is make sure that their elected politicians at all levels understand how important this is and that it isn't a niche thing anymore it isn't a small group of vegans i'm um, talking about animal rights or something it's much much bigger than that so when i look across my work strategies for the next year i'm looking at obviously the environment stuff the biodiversity stuff that you've just touched on and the um, conservation of wildlife pollution water usage then i'm looking at health there's a huge role that the plant-based um, sector can play in reducing heart problems and obesity and things like that, which we're missing a massive trick on in this country and, in fact, the Western world as a whole. And then you can go broader and then start looking at the animal welfare stuff, the use of antibiotics. It's vast and massive and we can no longer be seen as a niche voice. We are a central voice in the solutions here to how we tackle those problems as the plant-based people, basically, all of us, whether individual or coming together as an alliance. So for my alliance, I can go into government and I can say, I've come up with a clever plan. I can help you solve this, that, or the other. If they don't listen to me, I have a problem. And that's where I need the individuals, our plant-based community, our people who care about this, to say it does matter and to raise their voice. Social media, writing to their politicians, um, talking about it, telling friends about it. We have to... This, this moment... Right now in 2022 is absolutely huge for us because there's so much change going on. We're having a white paper delivered in in March on the future of food in the UK and how they are going to sort of source and manage food security, sustainability, all of those sorts of things. And there's a big chance that plant-based won't be mentioned very much in that. Mm. And that, that would be a big opportunity missed. This episode is kindly supported by our friends over at Newzest. Newzest are the creators of Clean Lean Protein. It's powerfully plant-based and complete with all nine essential amino acids. It's a natural source of iron and encourages recovery, vitality, and muscle repair. From seed to tub, they only use the ingredients you need and the cleanest processing required to bring them to you. I love this product. I use it in smoothies. I make muffins with it. It is fantastic. And my favorite flavor is strawberry. So if you like the sound of this product, please check out newsus.us forward slash PBN20 to get 20% off your first order. Cardiovascular disease related healthcare costs England, just England, £7.4 billion a year. According to Gov UK data, we know from things like the China study that the leading killers of human beings, including heart disease, can be stopped and reversed or even mitigated in in many cases with a whole food plant-based diet. This is not opinion anymore. Why is it that governments aren't getting on board with this messaging or this, or why they seem totally oblivious to this? Because obviously we can save so many lives and we can save governments billions. Of course, you know, they're all about cutting costs. Why does there seem to be a huge reluctance to something like this is just one part of the picture, as you mentioned, but there seems to be a, a still a huge reluctance to it despite the, the data. Well, I mean, there's there's cracks opening. There's certain um, politicians, Alex Sharma, for example, who's the um, COP26 president. He's spoken about the benefits of plant-based diets and so is Kwasi Kwarteng, who's the um, Secretary of State for Business. So there are sort of openings where people are understanding now. But I think the blockages are just there because of history. For decades and decades, we've had an industry, a, a meat and dairy industry, that have integrated themselves into, into government and they, they know what they're doing. They're slick lobbyists. They've got a big voice and people are very scared to change and they're scared of the economic ramifications of change and what it broadly means. In January, I noticed I was watching terrestrial television and an advert came on from the um, Agriculture and Horticultural Development Board, which is a government body. Oh, you've got to eat meat for, you know, iron and B12 and you've got to have dairy or else you'll crumble to dust kind of thing. Um, These are really old, old bits of information now. It's not as simple as that. Nutrition has, as you said, there's more and more studies coming out, but it's getting people to have the bravery to lead on this 
journalists and come out and speak on it and say, actually, I believe in it and making mm. it happen. And I think just because of history and the way it's always been, people are scared of offending certain groups or being attacked by them. Absolutely. I, I spoke with Matthew Schreiben about this, as I said, with regards to the climate crisis and the nature crisis. And my theory is that the reason we haven't seen much change regarding this, this crisis is because the information from the scientists has been shrouded and hidden uh, amongst people who are not communicators for decades. These people who hold the keys to the information, to the knowledge and the data, haven't been able to successfully communicate the magnitude of this problem to the wider public and to government officials in a very successful, succinct, or very sexy way. And the only reason why people like Greta Thunberg have been able to cut through now is because they're younger, youthful voices that use smart, clever ways, things like social media, to create mass awareness about change. And I really believe that this is the same with plant-based nutrition and health. The only way we're going to get through to more people is with that dreaded word influencer. But I mean, people using influencing in a really positive, well-backed, uh, data-driven way, but also dressing it up with a sexy kind of marketing advertising vibe. And that's ultimately why PBN exists and many of the other advocates in our space. I, I feel like we just need to 10x it. We, we have to find a way to get platforms like PBN double and triple the size and all the influencers, the likes of Earthling Ed and a lot of these communicators, even bigger platforms and help them reach more people. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, if we don't get through to enough people, we're not going to see the change that we want, right? As you say, we can go in and we can lobby, lobby government and try and push for change. But if the public isn't there supporting that change, right. we're kind of like, you know, going nowhere, aren't we? No, it's exactly right. I mean, I'm pro. I just came straight into this job saying collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. Don't care about the glory or anything like that. We just have to, don't care who leads it, but let's just collaborate to get all of that information and knowledge to amplify our voice because let's be realistic we are still the small guys we're still the David against the Goliath here um, when it comes to the traditional food sector and, and meat and dairy and the only way we'll have that voice is by coming together so every sort of person who's plant-based or flexitarian and believes in this who wants to add their voice and please come in add your voice to it because it does make a difference it absolutely does but you're absolutely right about the communicators. We've got to get the right people in the right places saying the right thing. And I'm really pro us being seen as a rational, pragmatic and evidence-based force rather than being tarred. I think they've used that tar, haven't they, of the sort of eco-nutters or the yeah. crazy animal rights vegans. Bunny huggers, thanks to Bodger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they take when they do that, they take away our science and our kind of rational evidence base and things, which is problematic for us. We're seeing it happen at the moment in the press about, oh, plant-based food is ultra processed and therefore really unhealthy. That is an attack on us again, because that's not the case. Ultra processed food is unhealthy. You shouldn't have too much of it. You eat it in moderation. It does it's not about plant-based, it's that's just broadly across food. Ham exactly. is ultra processed, bacon's ultra processed. Bread is ultra processed. <laughs> Yeah, no, bread is, but you cut a tomato up and it becomes processed. So they're attacking us all the time, trying to take away that credibility and that evidence base that we, that we are building. The scientists and the nutritionists and things are there. We just need to turn this into, as you say, sexy communications that gets listened to. Oh, all right, then. Let's see what's on TV. We've all got a lot on our plates right now. But here's something you'll want to make room for. The story of a food so natural, it takes the rain from the sky and the plants we humans cannot eat and turns it into something wonderful. Essential nutrients our bodies need to help us stay healthy. Meat and dairy. Enjoy the food you eat. Eat balanced. No, 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 no. This is just not acceptable. So with regards, you touched there a bit on how the meat, milk and dairy and egg industry uses all kinds of tactics to dissuade the public and obviously lobby and sorry, policymakers as well away from the, the plant-based direction. So we had, you know, change in the European Parliament and European policy around how plant-based companies can use the word dairy or cheese or milk. And they even tried to attempt to try ban vegan and plant-based products from using the words burger and sausage. And, you know, how long can this go on for? How, uh, you know, the writing is on the wall, things need to change, but how stupid do they think the public are? <laughs> Well, I don't believe anyone goes into a supermarket and accidentally picks up a plant-based burger and goes home and says, damn, you know, I, I meant to get the beef one or whatever. I don't believe that happens. People are a bit, you know, more intelligent than that. And they're placed in different areas generally anyway. So I think that's just a sort of, again, a distracting way of getting us off 
from what we're trying to achieve. But it is still going on because I know the European countries, lots of European countries now separately, individually are looking at this labelling issue, for example, and, and challenging it. So it hasn't gone away. I hope it doesn't come to the UK. I hope our, our politicians are more sensible than that. But again, it's a distraction from the bigger issues. Who cares what the name is? We're dealing with an environmental catastrophe in front of us, a biodiversity emergency, any of those sorts of things, huge, huge problems in front of us. So we, we've got to look at the bigger, bigger issues. Absolutely. I think, you know, the only way that we can get through to people is to figure out a way, as I said before, to develop the messaging and create a sense of urgency. But at the same time, obviously not alarming people too much because it's a bit like a sort of an alarm system, isn't it? If you go too far into this, into the system as such, into the sort of minds of people, it triggers this alarm system. Obviously, we're also playing with economic uh, in, um, incentives here and and, uh, and it, uh, really just frankly greed. A lot of these big industries, their focus is to make as much profit as possible. It's short-term thinking and short-terminism, which has got us into the trouble that we're in now. A lot of the, the decision makers at the top of a lot of these organizations are frankly fossils. <laughs> they are, they're old men who probably only have a few decades left. And in their mind, they're like, I'm going to live my life out you know, on my yacht here and there and just enjoy my life. I'm not really thinking about our, our future, really. I mean, that's how it feels sometimes. It might, might might not be true, but it just feels like that. It just feels like the short terminist deterministic thinking is really just all about making as much profit as possible in the quickest amount of time at the sacrifice of future generations. And it can be very hard to feel like there's a way out of this because greed, which is obviously of what I personally feel is at the center of a lot of our problems in this world. And how do we actually get through to people when this culture that we live in, this capitalist culture, which can really foster greed and selfishness. You know, what are your thoughts on how we counter it? Because we are dealing with very large commercial entities who are fund or funded or founded on that sort of greedy capitalist culture. Do you ever see a way in which humanity can sort of move away from that kind of thinking? Well, I think there's two ways. One is the government legislation way where you force them and you kind of say um, the values are in the things you show in regards to sustainability um, and both animal and human welfare, um, all of those sorts of things. So you can have a legislative system that helps you um, do that. But then there is also the fact that we've been through the strangest time, haven't we, over the last few years? I mean, we've had COVID. We watched um, the withdrawal from Afghanistan last year, which was really awful awful to watch. And then we're we've now got the Ukraine war going on and things. And I do feel there is a sort of change in energy and that people are starting to think more. I, you know, I mean, look at the widening of flexitarians, vegans and vegetarians, for example. There does seem to be some sort of evolution going on here where people are becoming more aware and more conscious and, and starting to challenge those big businesses. And I think we have to cultivate and grow that as much as we can. And I think that there is some sort of light at the end of the tunnel, basically. I can tell you a million things wrong at the moment and stuff that I want to tackle and things that aren't being done as they should be done. But I do think there there is a change and I think people are awakening. Absolutely. Well, I'd love to hear what those are, because as we've just said, there's a lot of miserable things and a lot of depressing things happening right now. But what are some of the good things that you are seeing out there that can give us a little bit of hope? So, I mean, as I said, all of the countries are reviewing and looking at how they um, um, change their food systems and things. The UK is doing that at the moment, which is opportunity there's opportunity coming and we've seen more and more animal welfare legislation for example brought in over the last few years than we've ever seen before so again that shows me people are starting to understand animals we've just had sentience legislation for example um, taken through parliament people have become more aware of, of these sorts of things I think businesses we've seen the likes of Unilever and Nestle Unilever in particular come out and say we're going to really make a drive towards um, creating more plant-based foods and thinking more about our sustainability and they've been criticised quite heavily for it actually by some quarters, but they're carrying on going and pushing forward with that. So I see that as a good sign. Of course, they're still a commercial and massive entity and people's feelings are very mixed about those big companies, but they're doing something. We've seen the growth of lots of small businesses and companies, and I think there's more opportunities for them coming through, which is great because that offers choice and the ability to grow the plant-based sector. 
you know, I think that there are small changes coming and there are opportunities to make bigger changes. And these alliances, you know, I started the alliance at the end of October last year. And now we have an international group of alliances, America, Canada, China, India and us and the EU alliance, which just shows in each of these countries, things are happening. People are getting organised. They're coming together. We're not sitting back passively anymore. We're getting organised. And like we've just said, we're getting that evidence together. We're forming our little army. Mm, yes, I <laughs> love that. Uh, things are changing. And that's the thing. Sometimes it can be very easy to get sucked into the negativity that we see in front of us every day, the news cycle constantly focused on, you know, the uh, depressing part of reality. Um, and the good news, the positive news um, is always lost in the Maya, isn't it? And, you know, because humans are strangely drawn towards negativity. Uh, it's that sort of car crash mentality when we have a, a bit of a, a morbid curiosity with the bad things. We often remember the bad stuff rather than focusing in on the good. But community is a vital part to bring change, bringing people together and organizing. You know, I would say to people, you know, you are not powerless as an individual. I think, you know, we may feel like we can't do anything on the, on their own. But take, you know, Plum Based News, for example, Klaus and I, we are only two friends who met just five years ago and Plum Based News reaches over 80 million people a month across multiple platforms and we've done that with a very small team and just the desire and belief to get this information to as many people as possible and, you know it's not easy uh, and it requires a lot of commitment and sacrifice but at the same time if you really believe in what you're doing anything is possible uh, but you've got to keep you've got to keep pushing as you say and form those bonds and build those little armies because otherwise is a David and Goliath situation is, is never going to be reality. Yeah, and I would say, um, Robbie, you have to put yourself out there. You know, it takes a bit of courage to sort of put yourself out there on these things because you will get attacked and there will be people who don't like what you're saying. But the more of us who come out there, the more collective we are and the more of a force we, we are. So, you know, the opportunity to be on here, I'm really grateful for because I just want to say to everyone, with an alliance like ours that's trying to change legislation on a massive scale, we can't do it without all of you behind us and supporting us and telling um, decision makers, this is what you want. So everyone's got power to an extent. Absolutely. So turning nicely on to the Plant-Based Food Alliance, what exactly is it and how will it function? What will its role be? So um, so basically it's formed of um, companies, plant-based companies and NGOs who want to work in the space of advocating for plant-based um, um, food companies and the growth of the sector. And we are there to come up with policy and to interweave our thinking into government policy. So when they're doing a big piece of work about what does the future of food look like, we need to make sure we're there with all of the evidence about the growth and potential economic scope um, around the plant-based sector. When they're talking about health, we need to be there with all the evidence around the benefits that we spoke about earlier to do with obesity and heart disease and things. So basically, we are there to lobby government and to say, do not ignore us in these huge conversations. All of the other farming groups and food groups have a seat around the table. We want our seat too. So we work predominantly on putting together policy and just trying to create a united voice for the mm. sector. Yeah. So is it is it a lobby group? What's the difference between a policy team and a lobby group? Do you have the power of a lobby group? We do. It is a lobby group, I suppose. Yes, I always try and avoid the word lobbying because people always sort of think of it as a bit of a bad word lobbying. Campaign sounds sort of cleaner, but they are the same thing, aren't they? They're, you've got a set of principles or a belief and you want to get them into legislation and you're there to put pressure on. But we're doing it in a very pragmatic and I like to think graceful way in that we're just saying we're one of all the other food sector, we're another organisation that deserves our voice at the table. We're asking for a level playing field here and for, for you to listen, government, to what we've got to say, because we have the answers to many of your problems. We're not going in as a kind of attacking, lobbying, aggressive group, anything like that. What are some of the uh, immediate results or impact that you've had so far uh, and or what is the, some of the results you're hoping for in the future with the Alliance? So at the moment, because we're quite new, we've um, focused on two pieces of work. In Scotland, they're doing a piece of work called the Good Food Nation, and they're looking at the whole way that they um, farm and create food over there. It's an important part of their economy. So we're working with Scottish farmers and um, Scottish businesses, um, businesses that are plant-based over there to show them how plant-based can be a real key part of their economy in Scotland and getting into that conversation. And in England, the key piece of work is the one I mentioned, um, a, a man called Henry Dimbleby 
a couple of years ago, who was the founder of Leon um, Restaurant, was asked by the government to um, write a food um, strategy, a white a paper basically, which he did. And it was an excellent document, which mentioned plant-based quite a few times through it. And the government now have to respond to that document, which they're doing this March, this year, with their outline for the shape of food in England. And we are creating our own plant-based food charter to sit alongside that and making sure that we're ready to move on whatever the government says and um, ensure that our voice is heard in, in those conversations and gets interwoven into the policy. So those are the two key pieces of work. In between then, since we started, we've been mainly having conversations very broadly with lots of different groups. So the environmental groups, as well as some of the animal welfare groups, as well as um, the plant-based commercial groups, to just unite people and bring them together. And the response has been absolutely brilliant. People are really keen to see this happen and everyone thinks it's the right time. So as I said, I'm really excited that we're going to see this move really grow. Mm, it's amazing. Uh, there's so much change coming. So yeah, we'll be keeping keeping abreast of all the developments. With regards kind of the brands themselves, what will you be expecting from the brands? Because you've mentioned some really big names there that are partnering and being a part of it. What is their role? Are they putting money into it to, to, to get build awareness and marketing? Like how do these brands actually kind of function as part of the alliance? And how do we keep them honest in that sense? Because obviously I was part of the, one of the meetings and I uh, pointed out uh, my concerns having someone like Alpro involved. Alpro is owned by the largest dairy company in the world. And it seemed a bit confusing to have a, a company like Alpro, which is obviously a plant-based brand with, with the commercial incentive for dairy. It just seemed at odds with a sort of mission. And how do we avoid uh, conflicts of interests? Yeah, so we had to work through that um, at depth. And as, as I've said um, before, I will get government to listen by having um, business on my side, basically. We've got to be honest about it. People listen to business and, and you spoke about sort of money and greed and things like that. The economy does make things go round. So when I've got big partners next to me on the alliance saying this matters, whether it's Unilever, Nestle, Danone, whoever it is, I get attention. So we're utilising those organisations and they recognise that. We've had to come up with strict guidelines as to how we work as an alliance to enable them to work with us when they might also be representing conflicting um, sectors. So we've got a very clean separation between how they work on, on those issues and how they work on ours. And we've said that basically the vision of our alliance is to grow the plant-based sector. And if you can't evidence you're on board with that and you're not demonstrating that within your own company, then you can't be part of the group. So, you know, for example, someone like Unilever's, I think they've set themselves 50%, haven't they? Or something like that to get to plant-based 50%. That indicates real growth and a real um, commitment to growing plant-based food and in which case we would work with them. And I really do understand as a vegan myself why some people might kind of say, well, I don't really get that and you should only be working with pure plant-based businesses. I do understand it. But my role is to be pragmatic and look at the ways that I can get an audience with government. So all of those conversations, um, I will have conversations with farming organisations and meat producers if that's what it takes to move this alliance forward because I think we have to have those sensible conversations. They've got problems. They've got to reduce meat and dairy. What's um, the UN? has said between 20 and 50%, some people say more. So how are you going to produce food? We're the answer. And those big companies, Unilever, Danone and things, are huge food providers. And they will give us a lot of power. They will put a lot of volume into our voice. They do. And they have huge distribution power, don't they, across the planet. How do we know their involvement isn't just greenwashing? Well, it goes back to that point of, are you actually reducing what you're doing in the in the other areas, doesn't it? So I think there's been quite a lot of conversations about supermarkets, for example, um, saying, oh, we're increasing our plant-based offer, but they're not then reducing their um, traditional meat and dairy offer. So they're just selling more plant-based stuff at sort of inflated prices and therefore making more money. So it's about looking looking at what they're actually doing and saying, are you replacing what you're doing with plant-based? So you're you're decreasing your percentage of other stuff. I think that's the key thing to look at. Yeah, I love that. I think holding them accountable and trying to you know keep them honest when it comes to greenwashing because it's very easy for companies like Nestle to say, oh, we've got all these plant-based products and we believe in a plant-based future while still pouring billions into animal agriculture, which is, as you know, as we've discussed, causing huge damage to our world. So we don't want to be in a place where these companies are only just providing lip service to the 
environmentals <laughs> such as ourselves as a way to shut us up you know we want to see real change and that's such a great way to look at it we've got to see that shift you know that balance that tipping of the of the of the scale in favor of a plant-based economy because it is you know better for everyone but caught in the middle of all of this are the farmers they are in the midst of this what we might call the great transition and this is something i, I feel like over the next 20 years we're going to see and you know the great transition towards a plant-based economy it's it's not a case of if but just when it has to happen but a lot of farmers are as i say uh, overwhelmed underfunded under supported under educated is that a word <laughs> regarding what's possible we've had some great uh, experiences with a team over at mercy for animals that have a very small project but impressive project running with the transformation project where they are helping facilitate a shift towards a plant-based economy so they have uh, chicken farmers that have been deeply indebted to large um, animal agriculture companies and have these huge chicken sheds you know housing thousands of individuals making a shift towards growing hemp or mushrooms and converting these barns into plant nurseries you could say to create and, and grow vast amounts of plant-based food and seeing their revenues triple and quadruple it's such an exciting possibility but again there isn't the support how do we create that support and how do we again lobby government to provide that support with that incentive that this is an imperative this isn't a bit of a fad that some farmers can do to make a shift that if we genuinely show farmers the right way and give them the the, the, fun, the funding and the support we can provide a food system that is fully plant-based yeah. So, I mean, that's one of our main objectives, because obviously government in the UK have just changed the whole mechanism around um, farming funding. So there's things called transition farming, um, transition funds, sorry, where they will help farmers move to different models and ways of doing things. So there's an opportunity here if you can get the examples. Now, farmers want to do good farming. I meet a lot of farming and most of them would like to do the right thing. So if you can show them how to, they will. And they just need that support. And that's where the government should be sort of helping them by saying, here's the funding to help change your systems if you need new infrastructure or new buildings to do things. And there's different models you can look at. I mean, farming as it stands, most farmers aren't making money or a lot of money from farming. And that's why that kind of density thing, the more you do when you move into mass farming, then it becomes more profitable. And that's the sort of part where it starts getting sort of horrible, doesn't it? Where you're doing intensive farming and most farmers would prefer not to do that. So we've got to come up with models. We've got to show them how to get more value out of what they're doing. So if you're a farmer and you're growing oats, but you also have the infrastructure to make that into milk, you increase your value from growing those oats, for example, there's more money in doing that. And there's a lot of new technology um, that can be used to utilize you know that transition funding basically that they can bring in new technology into their farms to help them cultivate crops and things more so i think we've just got to find ways of speaking to farmers more and, and showing them the models of how they can do things which is why it's great there are organizations now that are trialing those models and showing how it can be done and also thinking about farming being done differently. I know it's really expensive, but vertical farming, for example, um, which Holland's been very successful in, we've got urban areas where people are so disconnected with their food and you can use old buildings, office buildings and things like that and, and start doing farming in, in smaller areas, going upwards and things to create more plant crops. And I think that as well offers some really interesting ways for people to sort of become urban farmers, if you like, and do farming in a different way. Because at the end of the day, we've still got a population we need to feed and we want to try and get food security and not be importing food from abroad so all of that kind of you, we, there's so many things to look at it's it's absolutely huge and so, as i keep saying so many opportunities mm, there is so many opportunities we all got to work together to make the shift self-sustainability i think is such an important word to think about right now especially with the current war going on between ukraine and russia we live in this fragile world where there's things can change on a on a on a coin right there's so much that can shift away from us in an instant. The, the pandemic, the, the violence that goes on between countries. If we don't build a sustainable food system that's local, the future of humanity is pretty uncertain because our uh, industrialized food system is so huge and so interconnected, but the nature of that is is what's causing the problem. It's 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 almost a sort of like a parasitic behavior that we've in, you know encased the planet in agricultural land. And it is sort of sucking the life out of the biosphere. We have got to bring things more locally, bring things more focused within our cities. As you say, I could imagine abandoned buildings and warehouses all across London, all 
housing giant vertical farms. You know, the, the thing is with that also is we've got wider proper problems to tackle like mental health. And as we've spoken about physical health and things like that, getting people connected to their food and getting communities growing food, whether it's in abandoned buildings or allotments or public land, whatever it is, is the best way of solving some of those wider problems as well. The whole thing sort of fits so nicely together when you start looking at all the different components and thinking we could have such an amazing way of producing food, so much more positive than we're doing. Are there conversations about these sort of models going on in government? Are they talking about finding solutions to bringing food, growth of food more locally? There, there has been a conversation. Um, you know, I mean, I, I run the plant-based alliance as one of my jobs. I'm still involved in the other animal welfare stuff um, as well. So I still work with farmers and things like that. And um, we're having a lot of conversations about what you what's called local food. So how do you get animals back out on the land and not in intensive farming situations on the land, producing them locally, not sending them miles to be slaughtered, all of that kind of thing. So for those people that are either going to be flexitarian or still eat some meat, you produce um, the less but better model basically and that is also about being local so there's there are a lot of conversations going on about how you create that that local model but unfortunately we've let the big systems take over and lots of the infrastructure and facilities that that would have been there as part of those local models 100 whatever years ago have disappeared and been turned into housing estates and things so it's how you sort of think that through because I have to be quite practical in what I'm doing and kind of think to myself people aren't going to go plant-based next year probably not in five years, like the whole population, probably not in 10. It's a future ambition. So as you're trying to, it's all about percentages to me. You kind of start by saying, right, so get rid of 20%, 30%, 40%. Um, you go along with that. But how do you make sure those remaining percentages are local, UK, outdoor, all of those things that make it better? And there's so many things that we can grow in really cheap and easy ways. You know, even even in our own homes, things, things like sprouts, for example. <laughs> 10 years ago, I would have no idea that I could grow sprouts in my kitchen and that it's this really, really nutritious food, Uh, you know, lentils and chickpeas and pumpkin seeds. And it's so easy. All you have to do is take a jar, um, wash the seeds, put them in a jar, strain it, turn it upside down with some holes in the lid, and then let it sort of sit for a few days and then water it every couple of days to keep them moist. And before you know it, you have this nutritious, protein-packed foodstuff that you can grow in your own home. You can put on your salads and really nourish yourself. But imagine having a little shed or, you know, if you're a small holding, imagine having a little piece of land where you had loads of sheds or you're growing sprouts and you're growing mushrooms and you're growing, I don't know, what else can we grow? A hemp in a corner. You know what I mean? There's loads of different ways in which people can have little small pieces of land and grow their own fruits and yeah. vegetables. Yeah. And if we can do it indoors, as we're saying, using buildings as, as the Dutch and other people have, have shown us, then we can do that as well. And urban, you know, people living in urban areas can also do it. That, that to me is tremendous. There's no nothing better for your mental health and doing that kind of thing that connecting with with nature and the food and things all of those sorts of things so absolutely so with the UK being such a global leader how far off are we do you think becoming sort of the biggest in the world with regards plant-based or do you think we're already there I think we're on the sort of list around four aren't we for kind of consumption and um, um, we're one of the biggest producers of plant-based products so we are there but there's competition now and that's another role for the alliance working with the European Alliance and the American Alliance and things is to drive that competition and kind of say quick Holland's moving ahead or Israel's doing this and and to kind of create that competitive drive um, for governments to think let's be the leader in this because a lot of it also comes down to the research and innovation so how do you get flavours how do you use different products did you know there's 300,000 plant species and we only eat 20,000 of them so there's, they're all edible, those 300,000. So all of the innovation and new jobs and growth and things that could go around exploring those other plants, what we could create with them, what that means for the economy and jobs and things, I think has is, is got so much scope. So we're trying to sort of challenge the UK, basically. That's our thing. Be the number one. Stay at the top. Mm. What are some of the future goals for the Plant-Based Food Alliance? So what are the, your sort of big plans over the next few years? Well, my plan at the moment um, is I've got to get membership. That's a key thing for me because I think it's really easy to look in and kind of go, oh, Outpro and Oatly and Upfield and things are running this, let them go and we're sort of ride on the coattails. And that defeats the point because the more members I've got, the more government will listen. I have to get people behind this and on board of the Alliance. So that's my short-term priority at the moment. And we need that expertise and information from all the other companies as well um, to help us do this. My bigger goals, obviously, are to become part of the actual 
food system on the level playing field. And I keep men- I keep talking about this level playing field to everyone. We want to be seen as an equal sector, basically, as I, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, not a niche, not someone who's going away. We're only going to grow. So we want to be respected and listened to and included in all of the policy conversations that I've mentioned um, throughout this conversation. That's my ultimate objective. But also we want to see outcomes in terms of the government's food strategy and the work they're doing. Eco labelling is likely to become an issue as well going forward. So we, we need to have a strong voice in there and get the right outcomes for our sector. And just to be seen to represent um, the plant based in a really positive way. We'll be going to events, we'll be speaking wherever we can speak and, and really banging the drums. Well, it's a very exciting time and uh, I'm glad and excited and happy to be a part of the Alliance. We definitely need to find ways in which we can amplify and boost what you're trying to do on PBN. So we should definitely have a brainstorm session at some point and work out how we can you know, use the power of PBN and what we've built to get the message uh, and what you're trying to achieve in front of more business owners and leaders in the movement with regards advocacy, but also innovation and, and tech and all that too. So I know there's there's got to be a ton of people out there who, who follow PBN who would love to be a part of the, of the Alliance once they understand what it means. People are obviously so busy in their lives, running their businesses, looking after their families when new things appear unless it really has a compelling narrative it's quite hard to get people to stop and listen and we see this every day when we have brands come to us and they say oh please support us please talk about our product or service on plant-based news and i say we could do that but when we build campaigns and we want to build awareness it's so important to have a clear plan you guys clearly have a plan so I'm really excited to find a way in which we can integrate the plant-based food alliance into PBN in a really meaningful way so that we can try and get it in front of a lot more people and really support you in 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 our you know in a small way or big way or whatever we can do so I'm excited for the future that would be great. Really, really grateful for that. Um absolutely. That's all we want to do and we were here to work for the plant-based sector and you're, everyone's part of that so mm, amazing well before i let you go marissa i always like to ask my guests this one final question and since you've listened to the podcast you know what's coming next <laughs> if it was just you uh, on a desert island and you were there with a pig and i gave you one vegan dish one book and one music album what would you take with you well i'll do the music album first because prince probably 1999 but anything by prince because i just love prince so it would be prince with me my old favorite catching the rye because i just think it just captures up the kind of essence of being human and the kind of feelings you get when you feel sort of isolated and things and alone and i think we've all felt that way at some point i'd certainly be well i wouldn't be alone because i'd have my pig so i definitely wouldn't be alone but anyway it's one of my favorite old time books and what would i take my dish wow that's a really difficult one i think it would probably be am i allowed to mention brands or not Sure. Okay, Moving Mountain Burger is an always go-to one. It's excellent. I've tricked all sorts of meat eaters with that burger. But I'd also take some nutritional yeast with me because nutritional yeast, B12, we need that, don't we? (laughs) Good choice, Marissa. Thank you so much for joining us on the PBO podcast. What a pleasure to sit down with you. Thank you so much, Robbie. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. We'll be back next time with more veganism, food, fashion, animals, and everything in between. Mm